All right, everybody, this is Jean Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations, and I have some powerhouses on the show today. Um, and I'm just thrilled because to me, they symbolize the future of our state if we're going to survive. And um, this, is not a, this is not a hypothetical question because we are faced with daunting challenges as it are many communities all over the world, but we should theoretically be a model for how to deal with the, uh, the climate challenges in particular and kind of really antiquated corporate policies and government policies that our, uh, are keeping some of the issues that we're dealing with in place when we should be tackling and really eradicating them. So um, I, I was thrilled to pick up and, and read the story that Hallie Parker in The Advocate wrote about you all. The new nonprofit Suing Parish wants to help heal the descendants of slaves. All right, uh, let me introduce um, Joy and Joe Banner uh, have been leading um, an effort uh, based on their uh, uh, being descendants of the slave economy of the state. Uh, Beverly Wright is a recognized and longtime environmental justice professional. So let's, let, I want to start, um, <clears throat> excuse me, start with the Banner twins, I, I assume. I have a quote here from the article. It says, we are the victims of a crime that happened. And here we are still dealing with that crime. So let, let me start with um, a Joy and Joe, whoever wants to uh, kind of open this discussion. And let's start, start with exactly what you are, in, are engaged in at the moment. Well, That's I think that, um, of course, as twins, we start at the exact same time. But, <laughs> Um, I'm happy that you 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 pulled that statement from the article that a crime has happened and we are the victims of a crime. And that was um, a realization, honestly, that I had not come to until we started to fight, to fight the zoning issues that we are struggling with in a parish, uh, trying to take these criminal laws that have been placed on our community and we have been victim to for all of these years finally acknowledging that, and then trying to work for something better. So we started, we had our nonprofit, the Descendants Project, working on different issues, tourism being one of them. And then we realized, or at least I did, Joy maybe realized before, that this was just one small part of what we needed to do to help our community. We could not ignore the environmental justice issues that was happening all around us too. And the corrupt, the zoning, these laws that are being passed that are different in communities based on the demographics in such communities who could have, you know, C1 commercial one versus I3 industrial, the administration, parish council, people telling us what we're worth and what, what we're worthy of. All these different things just came into play. And in our lawsuit and having to dig through all of these situations and also reaching back into the past when we first had to deal with Famosa when we were 10 years old, it's just bringing it all home to us and bringing it all to light what we have to struggle with um, and, and just that we are not going to sit here and take this anymore without fighting back. Joy, yeah, you were a tag team. Uh, yeah, and, and just to add on, I, I really wanna make sure that this is, and so with what happened with us with, with Ramos, as you read in, in, the, um, in the newspaper article, um, but in putting together our case, we revisited a cache of, of articles from 30 years ago, specifically about Formosa. 
And, you know, we had those documents because one of the, um, one of the people who um, lived on, on Whitney's site, um, she was descended from um, from the white owners or, or, or white management that had been on the site at the time. The Whitney Plantation. Um, the Whitney Plantation, as they were, they were the family. She was involved, she was a family to sell off their property and they were making decisions about it. And um, she did not want the a plantation to be sold. She wanted it to be preserved. And so she collected all of these documents. They did sell it and it, she collected all of the newspaper articles. But as I was reading through the articles, um, it made me realize that this is not a new fight. You know, you've had people that have been fighting for the last 30, 40, 50 years. You know, right. they, so this is not a, a new trend. You know, and in fact, we're building so much on what, you know, our predecessors did before us. Um, and the reason why we were able to come in, you know, and, and fight so strong is because of the work that's being done by, you know, environmental groups now, you know, um, in St. James Parish, they're still fighting Formosa, we're still fighting Formosa, um, but to realize how much of that work and how much people have tried, you know, so it's, they did have the agency, they were trying, um, even throughout the last 30 years, there were moments where we tried, you know, in different ways to address the zoning, but it's very difficult to get any momentum. And I think that now what we have going for us is, you know, um, the, the pandemic, the, you know, the, um, you know, the, the justice issues, especially the Black Lives Matter issues. So it's, we really are at a, a good point where the world is kind of waking up more to um, what's happening. Um, unfortunately, because the, um, the consequences of it too are so bad. You know, now like we are cancer, rally and, and the, the pollution levels are, are at a at a um, at a height that's so unbelievable that just the headline itself is so captivating you know so compelling that it's you know unfortunately the catch 22 of it all is that they or that people are interested in our stories because it's just so terrible um so yeah um but i just want to again acknowledge that you know there has been a lot of work that's been done and and we do certainly um, always want to give that respect, you know, and, and to, to the people who've done this work before us and, and are still in the game doing it. Right. But but let's specify briefly exactly the nature of the suit that you are mm -hmm. uh, have filed and are fighting right now. Mm -hmm. So um, this all comes on. A, it's we learned in March of last year. Can't believe it's been almost a year um, through a, a public notice that a massive grain terminal was going to be on the site. Um, that was in the 1990s, it was illegally zoned as industrial. The parish president at the time was um, Lester Miet Jr. was convicted of taking a bribe and influencing that process so that, um, you know, serve time so that the, the land itself was zoned industrial. That zoning remained on the books. The purchasers of the land continued to form sugarcane on it for the last 20 or so years. So really that the land has not been problematic for us because it's been used for sugarcane, which sugarcane has its own issues. Um, but you know, you, you get what I'm saying. Um, we as a community were not told about this grain terminal. Um, the Port of South Louisiana last year, um, during a time where our parish who was suffering from the effects of COVID, we had the highest per capita um, COVID death rates. Um, I think Harvard studies are co connecting the relationship between the severity of COVID and pollution. Um, our Port of South Louisiana, our public officials were signing letters of support um, for this project. And specifically the Port of South Louisiana was applying for 
um, a federal grant to build a $25 million dock or $25 million to build a dock and then lease it to the private company of Greenfield. Um, so talking about like the way that the lines between private, you know, the public interest and our public officials get blurred, that certainly has happened in this case. Um, and since did we found say, out about me, it. Let me, uh, uh, did you say the Port of New Orleans? Port of South Louisiana. South Louisiana, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay, and, and so since then it has been a concerted effort on a coordinated effort in our opinion where our public officials including our council members are not telling us about this project um, not letting us know like deliberately you know or coordinating with the company to not hold meetings um, through public records requests that we have submitted in FOIAs um, to like the Corps of Engineers we have emails where the company is explicitly stating that they have concern and that they are anxious about adjacent landowners learning too much about this project, project right? So there's just warning signs all over it. Um, still, our council members have refused to put us on the agenda. They have not um, accepted any of our invitations to um, come to our community meetings. And so we have been left, you know, as Joe was saying, as, as victims of a crime, that land is a crime scene. Um, it has been illegally zoned for that long and we have remained targets for that long. Um, and, you know, just to, to you know, put a, a, a multi-generational aspect of it, when that land was illegally rezoned, me and Joe were 10 years old, my grandmother was still alive. My grandparents and great aunts and uncles who are no longer with us were, you know, um, were still alive. My parents were the age that I am now, you know, and to say that we have this, it's like a monster movie, you know, where you think you've killed the beast, you know, and then you at the end when that, you know, like you see like the eye twitch or a finger move or, and you're like, oh, we're gonna have a sequel. And um, we're having, we not only, you know, we're having a sequel, but St. James Parish is having that sequel too. Um, so yeah, it just, just goes to show you um, the amount of coordination that happened. I just learned recently that the, that Formosa had a say, not a say, they practically designed our bridge, the Veterans Memorial Bridge. Initially, 10, family member, 10 families had to be displaced, including you know, um, several families within our family. Um, but the trucks, were, the trucks would not be able to make a 90 degree turn. So the state allowed Formosa to come in and redesign our bridge. And instead of 10 families being displaced, which is horrible enough, 40 families were displaced instead. Wow. And of course, this was a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Uh, uh, Beverly, um, this is not a new story to you either. This must be just some kind of horrible deja vu for you as well. Uh, share with me your perspective on, on the fight. Yeah, um, this is a really hard story to hear. And I have family members who are from, who are friends of Joe and Joyce um, family who lived in that area for many years. Um, so it's, it also gets to be a bit personal, but for me, all of the fights have been personal. I think the thing that is most distressing is that this is a multi-generational fight. And as I told jo Joy and Joe, the main culprit, believe it or not, is the Clean Air Act and the regulations that allow uh, companies to pollute. They, they can legally pollute even 
even though you're fighting all of the zoning issues and all of that of where it is, um, they wouldn't be able to build these types of facilities if the Clean Air Act was actually protecting health. Uh, that, that, that standard, the Clean Air Act basically is based on industrial standards. And that means how much can I pollution can I emit and still make a profit? Yeah. Everything is profit motive. And if I went through the, the calculation, which only includes other quote, grain elevators or facilities and, and looking at the one that releases the least amount of poison, they take the last three and um, divide that number and that's your standard. That's not a health standard, that's an industrial standard. So the um, origins of our problem go way, way past zoning, but zoning is the gateway to all of it in the sense that it allows them to steal our land and destroy our communities. Um, we understood zoning was a culprit a long time ago and believe it or not, one of the things that we did in almost 30 years ago was fight um, to get um, a community, it may have been Geisma or St. Gabriel, um, to get them um, where they had control of their own community. You know, it's unincorporated to get them incorporated. And the backlash after that was done was unbelievable. The state moved to make it illegal for you to incorporate because when they incorporated, they then got control of the industries within their community. And I believe that mayor ended up going to jail. That's how much they were against it. So the forces are unbelievable, but we understood zoning. Um, if you remember Mr. Green, that's how I met, uh, started working with, um, with Formosa, with Mr. Green, who was just a wonderful man. He refused to sell. It was so much pressure to sell. And I remember my relative's family refused to sell as well. And then they kind of disappeared for a while, you know? Um, uh, but, but, you know, they always come back because the laws don't protect them. What has changed? What has changed is climate change. Climate change has changed the game with environmental communities and people of color groups recognizing that they would, will have to come back to solve this problem. And what they're recognizing that industry doesn't seem to care about I think rich people believe whatever happens to this earth, they'll be able to avoid it, even if it means going up into space. I'm not sure, but I keep looking at this. Are they preparing a place for after they destroy earth to be able to live up there like that movie Oblivion, you know, where they had their own place? I'm not sure. It sounds like fantasy, but the more you look at it, I'm like, oh my God, maybe, maybe, you know, this is a possibility. But what green groups are recognizing and many people are recognizing that climate change will destroy all of us. It will destroy this earth. The, um, our environment, the earth has already become a, uh, uh, a or the earth has become a hostile environment for humans to live because of continuing storms were, that caused billions of dollars of damage in like three hours. You know, we can't even make a bomb that could destroy this earth the way that Mother Nature can in just a few minutes. Recognizing uh, that we have to reduce um, greenhouse gases or it won't be here. That is the driver. 
for them now beginning to take a second look at things, not so much because of us, but because knowing that these hotspots are adding to greenhouse gases and adding to our uh, uh, to the destruction of the earth. Now, that's my personal take on it for me. That's been the driver that has gotten EJ groups into the room with the big green groups. It's gotten us into the White House with Justice 40 and all of these other bills now. The motivator is to save the planet. And so we're I happy that they're finally here because we've been here for 30 years. We understood the connection and they did not. So uh, just to give you a little bit of a personal um, uh, perspective from me on this, um, in 1973, I was a reporter at WDSU and I decided to do a story about living without energy uh, because that was the uh, energy crisis that we had at the time. So I traveled around South Louisiana and um, I'll never forget the day that I uh, was out on the water and um, there was a guy, a crabber, uh, picking up his traps and, um, you know, I kind of just pulled up in our boat to him and said, what's going on? He said, listen, lady, he said, you better tell somebody that our wetlands are totally disappearing because they never cleaned up what they should have cleaned up from their, uh, by the um, uh, energy companies that came in and put in pipelines and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, so I started trying to pay attention to what was going on with the EPA in the state. And I, and I saw that there, there was no real attention being given to these issues. So that's 1973. So you say 30, I'll say for me, 50, 50 years that I have mm -hmm. observed the failure to deal with this, that of course it's been a whole century really that uh, since we in the 20s really started uh, accommodating the energy industry in our state. Um, is, it, is this suit and other suits like it the chief tool that is going to, um, and, and, I, and I totally agree with you, Beverly, about climate change and bringing it home to white communities and, um, and, uh, and young people, of course, who, who have to live on this planet after all of us are gone, um, are, are, are very concerned about this. But um, it, uh, are the suits going to do it? What is it really going to take? And I, I feel like it has to be uh, such bigger uh, a movement that is that has the, the same kind of drama and um, motivation and energy that again, the Me Too and the Black Lives Matter movements um, have had. Um, so is, is, what, is what is happening now, uh, the realization of climate change, is it um, transforming into um, action uh, agendas that are going to have the the widespread impact that is going to be necessary in order to stop the continuation of the crime. Who are you directing the question to? Anybody who wants to answer it. I kind of was thinking about you because you have the broader. Oh yeah, I, I just have a. I talk too much, so I'm always trying to make allow, you know, other people uh, uh, to speak first. Um, the response that we need to save the planet is pretty complicated, it's not simplistic, and there are numerous pieces to it. 
But if we don't develop a strong people's movement, nothing will happen because politicians control and big politicians and very wealthy utility companies control the majority of this. So how do you make that change? And one of the things that happens on the ground is that first you take little bites like the fight in, um, in, in, in St. John's Pass. Is you, are you St. John or St. John? You St. John. St. John. So, yeah, St. John Parish. The fight in St. John Parish, the fight in St. James Parish. Um, the noise that communities make in, in building that movement, which is what we did 30 years ago, where we had the, all the communities all along the corridor all working together. There were about 16 different communities fighting at the same time for their own community. And grain elevators, by the way, is also one of the worst with respiratory ailments and skin. It's just impossible for you to continue living in a place when the air is that filled with small particles of grain, by the way. Um, but it was the, the movement on the ground and then the incorporation of about four or five different other types of groups like environmental law groups, Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, the NAACP Legal, Legal Defense Fund, all of these uh, nonprofit law groups, and I would warn you not to deal with taunt lawyers ever. Don't sign any papers. Make certain that you only deal with nonprofit law groups because that will give you, get you no place. They'll just get money in their pockets. Mm -hmm. That uh, and then other environmental and EJ organizations all coming together um, to fight this battle. That puts the pressure then on the green groups. That then puts the pressure on government and these storms coming every year motivates action. Yeah. Although, you know, with the Republicans right now, I don't know what motivates them, nothing seems to. But you know, we have to keep um, making certain that people vote so that we can bring about some of these changes. But I believe that there has to be uh, a movement and that movement is afoot. And I wanna make sure that Joe and Joe get to join you know, other larger groups doing this work so that we then have a bigger voice, you know, uh, in the corridor. Louisiana, because we produce with one fourth or one fifth of the, of the oil products for the nation, we are extremely an important source of petroleum for the, for the country, right? But this is the thing, the majority of that processing occurs in a 85 mile stretch of land between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. When I first started working, they were releasing, they didn't even know how many pounds, it was 800 million pounds of carcinogens into the air, water, and soil. 800 million. People were dropping like flies in the Carter. Cancer everywhere. Waking up at night, um, throwing up, nosebleeds, all of that stuff when I was working in the car, we managed to get those numbers down to in the 200 some million pounds. But guess what? That's still all in an 85 mile stretch of land. Texas has almost the same amount of pollution. You know how big Texas is? So we have the highest cancer rate in the nation and they have been denying it over and over again. President Biden was the first president to ever call the Mississippi River Chemical Carter Cancer Alley. And they went berserk, but they being our senators and congresspeople 
from Louisiana. They don't even want you to say it while their own people are dying because they're so tied to the industry. My biggest fear now is that because they understand we have to transition from oil and gas, is that they want to transition to something that's still not clean. CCS, LNG, you know, and put them right in the same places where all of the dirty industry has been, has been killing us for years. That's our second fight. The fight is where, where you are now, where um, Sharon Levine is, but it's also inside of EPA because it goes back to um, how do you measure these poisons and how do you make a decision of whether or not it's safe? It requires turning EPA upside down in the direction that it should be, not influenced by government or politicians who have influenced every decision that has come out of DEQ. You all don't know how corrupt DEQ is, but we had to sue them in, in years past and they lost for being in cahoots with industry, the ones they're supposed to protect us from. So working with EPA, and let me just say this, another thing we have on our side now is science. We have much better science today than what we did 30 years ago. Our communities were dying and they were sick. They were going to court and they were suing. And the first thing that happened was you don't have the science to show that the type of cancer that's riddling your community is a cancer that comes from our one chemical. And they were right. It wasn't one chemical. It was hundreds of chemicals in that surrounding that community from different plants causing rare cancers. And they knew it but they also knew that we did not have the science to prove it. Guess what? We have it now. So everything is about to change. The approach for trying to protect communities is going to change. And I if we Beverly, win uh, your fight, then you will really have a clean environment to put different things where you live. So to my mind, there's two things that are really critical in the process that you're describing. One, um, the state politicians that are, as you describe, corrupt, many of them are corrupt and some of them are just um, uh, immoral, uh, are just um, uh, uh, keeping their eyes closed, what, whatever their, their particular mode. But we have to call these people out. And, um, you know, we live in this state with a legislature made up of people who um, are lined up with the lies that we are experiencing at the national level. We, we've got some people who need to be held accountable and we need their names and faces and their policies linked through the media graphically. And I'm not going to say that it is exclusive to them because there are Democrats that are on the wrong side of the law too on this. Mm -hmm. Let me not just blame it on one party. It's not a partisan issue. It is an issue of us not holding our elected officials personally accountable for what they do. So you, the, the kind of things you were describing, what if there was an ad that ran on television that shows the, the, the legislator and shows the policies that he has voted for, which have killed people through cancer. I think there has to be something very visceral and dramatic 
and in your face that will bring home what's happening. Because right now we give those guys a pass because we either ignore them because we think it's hopeless. If we don't do something about who sits in those seats in that legislative session in our state, we'll never get the change that we're talking about. So it's not just about voting. It is about really outing, outing is the word I wanna use, outing the individuals who are one after the other to blame for these policies. That's just my take on it too. Well, and you know, it's in, you know, it, it is, when it comes down to, you, you mean you're right, the outing part of it, but what people don't understand, especially in small communities, right? There is a, I mean, there is a, a social consequence and there is sometimes people, but social consequence, financial consequence, even, you know, some people fear, you know, for physical repercussions. You know, so, and, and you talk about, you know, this is being a, you know, like a, a Republican led, you know, thing and it, it, it could be, but what in our issue, we have a predominantly Democrat, Democratic um, elected council, I mean, the Democrat um, party. We have a predominantly, you know, black leadership. Um, we have a black sheriff, black DA. Um, I, I mean, it's all within, I mean, and I say that because we're talking about environmental racism, even though we know mm. environmental classism is an issue too. But what happens is, it's not about, it. you have some people that are perpetrating to be Democrats, who they're only doing it because now they have a way of having influence, especially if, if you're a white Democrat, now you get a certain amount of trust, you know, from the black community that where there's certain decisions where it's kind of like, well, this person is a Democrat, so I trust them because the Republicans are so bad and not, not saying that they aren't, but I think we got to get out of the, you know, we have to get away from this idea of like, well, Louisiana is just corrupt. That's the way it is, you know, and, it's so much more of a, a complex um, intermeshed web of influence, you know, the way that they operate. I have this deal on land. You have this deal on land. You Republican, I'm Democrat. Who cares? All of our pockets are being, are being filled. Tell me, can really go in and said, target like these nexus of power, like really become said. a big... I is so somebody that somebody that we are thinking um I'm sorry I think I'm breaking up yeah but somebody that we understand like if you have um for instance Governor John Bell Edwards if there is a problem with how who are the people that he, he appoints to the boards and commissions right and so it might not be you know like people may have a favorable attitude about John Bell Edwards especially if you're a Democrat but what about the people that he's appointed on his boards and commissions? You know, like, mm -hmm. are we holding, again, going back to your idea about accountability, mm -hmm. is not just holding that person accountable because you are not the end of it. If you have appointed somebody that's not doing their job, then you need to be held accountable for getting, you know, getting rid of that person. And I think that's where we mess up. We just get bogged down with, you know, Democrat versus Republican. Uh, uh, even sometimes, you know, Black versus white. Because you know, race is just a strategy to to put us all under control and disenfranchise mm -hmm. all of us. And mm -hmm. you've got to understand the strategy, the the complex ways that these people are moving. Uh, and if and if we took down the strategy, I bet there's probably only a handful of people that you would make that you would need to 
I don't say want to say target, um, but but target in the in the in the right way, in the right context, um, that be able to break down these silos of power um, that would make a, a a big deal. I mean, that's the reason why um, with me and Joe are going. I think you know going to these ports. Look how powerful these ports are. Um, you know, like commissions like the Riverboat Pilots Association. The, the organizations, the levy board, right? These are organizations that never get called out. Um, and, and so, yeah, we have to start digging a little bit more deeper um, when we start understanding the way that these powers and organizations operate. I stand highly corrected. I, 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 I got it. And, and you're absolutely <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and of course, I should remember that it all started under the Democratic um, administrations of Huey P. Long way back, you know, the populist of all time in Louisiana mm -hmm. and in the nation, and, and it all started uh, under his watch. So mm -hmm. yes, you're absolutely right. It is, and it is that complex. Um, I guess I'm just, I, I am, let me put the emphasis back on what I was saying, outing, outing the individuals, the organizations, and, and what you're saying, I, I, uh, the expression you use, the silos of power, really attacking those silos and making clear um, uh, it, it, uh, what we're dealing with. And I, I just, I, I'm someone who believes in the impact of the visual. So I, I really believe in the importance of seeing these faces next to their words and their deeds. And, and so Beverly, I think we need to raise money for media campaigns that bring this stuff out through literally advertising. And I, I guess I have this bent because my background is in, in media and I've, I've, I've worked it. I, I've worked campaigns where I did little campaigns about the facts, right? You were talking about the science and now having the science. Putting those facts out on the screen in a couple campaigns that I worked on changed people's minds. And so yeah. getting that stuff out there in a very visceral and clear way to me is an important tool. Um, so there you are, you guys are working in the courts, you're working, um, uh, thank goodness, you know, you have a reporter and, and I think it's very interesting. I don't know if you know this, but um, some of the environmental writers that work for the Times-Picayune are supported through um, philanthropy. That, that actually pays their salary so that they can report. That's why we have so much more reporting on this in the Advocate Thomas Picayune is because there's money that the paper may not have had or attributed for this use. And that's how you get an article from Miss Parker, is it? Yeah, Hallie Parker. Hallie Parker, right? Yeah. So, um, and, and, and again, even, even uh, thinking about that um, a, a strategy too, of literally raising money philanthropically to pay for people to help get this message out. I to me, it is really critical. But Jean, I, I just wanted to interrupt just a, just a bit because- Please, Beverly. Everything that everybody has said is spot on. This is very complicated. Um, communication Did you say muddled? On muddled? What was the word you used? Everything um, you're talking about is what? It's complicated. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah, I support everything. Everything that's been said is absolutely true. This is a very complicated uh, puzzle to solve. 
to get us where we want to get. But I think that one of the things that we have to remember is motives and mm -hmm. apathy. Um, the destruction of our public school system where our children aren't being properly educated. I can't speak to what's happening in the rural areas in St. John and St. James, but I can tell you what's happened in the city of New Orleans and urban uh, areas all over the country. You know, the, the taking over of the schools by uh, so-called chartered and our children are not being properly educated. And the gap between those who know and who don't is getting wider and wider. In other words, a middle-class black family can afford to get tutors and send to private schools, but the children who we really need educated are being left out. Um, and that creates the apathy that exists because of the lack of education and the misuse of social media, Facebook, Twitter, and all of these kinds of things and the way they manipulate thought by placing people in silos, I think is a, even a bigger enemy than what we're fighting here. Because if people are not educated, they don't know to fight. So the hardest thing is to break that apathy to get people to understand that they can make a difference. You know, I, uh, I, even when you look at people who take the shot and won't take the shot, people who wear masks and won't make masks it, and won't wear masks, it's insanity. But it is because of the media and the, the, the lack of proper education not being able to break through with facts. So the communication idea is, is communication is very important. And we are launching an, an oil and gas campaign. We're beginning, that's on our books to move forward. Uh, we're hoping that philanthropy is going to step in to help us with a lot of this. But if they don't, we're gonna do it anyway because we've always done this work without a dime. And mm -hmm. we will continue to work with or without money it would be helpful. But one of the things that we're going to do is to relaunch our oil and gas campaign upriver. And that's why I was telling Joy and Joe about joining this because we connect, you know, in larger numbers, we'll have a bigger voice and we are able to bring in these other legal nonprofits and all of these groups to work with us when they see people are now ready to fight. You have to show you're ready to fight for other people other other people to come in. So breaking that apathy, you know, and, and you know what breaks apathy? Education. When people really hear the truth and hear how it's affecting them, the apathy leaves and they get the feeling that they want to fight, especially when they feel that their civil rights are being violated. For Black people, you show me how white people are getting something that we're not getting or something is being taken away from us that should not be taken away from us. You can get us to stand up and hear our voice, but they need to know what's happening to them and not that so this So that goes back to my- The way, you're, the you're way speaking, it is. You're speaking of education in, in, in the bigger um, universe of, of our school yes. systems. And I couldn't agree with you more about that. But I, all I'm saying also in addition is think about um, how you can short circuit uh, to some extent, the communication process. Absolutely. I agree with you. Can I actually, yeah. actually I just want, oh, yeah, Joe, go ahead. 
Um, okay. I, I'm just, I really uh, I like the thought, especially the being for apathy, um, but I think it's also, and Joy and I are both communications, um, mm -hmm. that's our background. So mm -hmm. um, one thing that I, as important, I think it's important to lay down all the facts and put those out there and have a strong campaign. I also Absolutely. think it's important to show what we can become and to have opportunities and to show people that we have opportunities, give them, educate them, as you said, and the other possibilities that's available. You know, when we talk mm -hmm. about industry, right? If you say the word industry, we automatically think petrochemical industry. We don't think tourism industry. Right. We don't think film industry. We don't think economic or um, ecological industry. We already program into this paradigm the industry means one thing. So that's education that we need to break yes, down. Absolutely. Having a neg and I agree with the negativity. You also have to present from our own experience and knowing yes. how, what I'm seeing with these other plants would do, what they get away with. They can present a beautiful rosy picture. Okay. This, right? Healthy jobs and all of this stuff. And here you are on the other side with truth but it's hard truth, it's a hard pill to swallow. Right. And so people are like, do I wanna, they're, they're stuck in the middle. They're gonna go towards that rosy picture every time. Yeah. Even if you have compatible or compelling information, I should say, they still are looking towards Dorothy and Oz versus you know, mm -hmm. uh, what's going on with the Wicked Witch on the other side. So mm -hmm. we have to just, I think part of our messaging and campaigning is something that we are doing is isolating the jobs. We see them all the time, the industries that we can work with. We are partnering with some creative industries along the river to where we are presenting an opportunity um, to have a more complex picture of what we're trying to do mm -hmm. along the river. Mm -hmm. I, I would very much like to wonderful ladies on that because I'm working on a strategic plan for the creative industries of New Orleans. I head up an organization called the Creative Alliance of New Orleans and I am totally focused on us leaving the talents of our people kind of like you would leave oil in the ground. We're just not bringing it yeah. out and supporting it. Leave it in the ground. So I yes. really want to follow up with you. Listen, we don't have too much time left and I, I, I'm having to now dedicate the whole show to you, which is really what I wanted to do in the first place. I had somebody else I wanted to get on this show and they're going to have to wait. But um, I, I want to um, ask you to please, each of you, give some of our audience um, some uh, websites, some uh, contact points, some uh, way of entering into the fight. So if you might, each of you uh, share some sources of ways that people can connect with you and become involved. So uh, at Beverly, why don't you start and then um, uh, each okay. of you. Um, so um, I'm Dr. Beverly Wright, director of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice in New Orleans, Louisiana. We work across the Gulf Coast. And you can go to our website, www.dscej.org. Or you can just Google my name and all of the information, Beverly Wright will come up and direct you to where we are and the work that we do. And we are um, the, the Descendants Project. Um, my name is Joy and my sister name is Joe, Joe and Joy Banner. And you can find information um, about what we're doing, including this week, we're actually going up to Washington, D.C. for D.C. Mardi Gras. So while our, um, our elected officials are partying, me and Joe are going to be meeting um, with folks because this 
marks um, one year anniversary since Biden, like you said, mentioned Cancer Rally. So we're going up there to Washington, D.C. and making sure that he does not forget it. Um, so, yeah, so you can find out more information if you go to www.thedescendantsproject.com. You can um, find out more information about what we're doing and sign up for our um, electronic newsletter and get information about ways to sign petitions. Um, also submit letters of support for um, when we need um, we need voices, you know, to speak up for our protection when it comes to the various permitting agencies. Um, so yeah, we appreciate you know you, all of you all um, following us also on our Instagram and our Facebook at the Descendants Project. And yeah, thank you. Right, repeat the website one more time, please, a little, yeah. little slowly. Yeah, it's thedescendantsproject.com. Thank you. Joe, do you want to add? No, just um, the website is a, is a uh, like Joe mentioned, is good. And also please sign up our, our newsletter because that's a really good way to uh, stay in touch with us. And we're, up, we're updating just on our, the status of our lawsuits and any other environmental concerns. We're also monitoring other issues. So uh, I, I would encourage everyone to please just sign up for that. Please, all of you, uh, uh, keep me informed. Um, I'm happy to have you back on uh, whenever you want to come on. I, I couldn't be more uh, invested in, in uh, your concerns and uh, very supportive of it. So um, let me hear from you. Thank you all for listening. And um, don't just stay tuned, get involved. Thank you very much, Joy, Joe, Beverly. Um, good luck on everything. I, I'm with you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, one of the characteristics of creative people is that they discover their creativity at a very young age and they start developing it. They may not even identify that as such, but they start practicing it. So I think it's really important that um, the Trombone Shorty Foundation and the George Rodriguez Foundation have paired up to do a program um, that is going to offer some support for um, a young a young artist, or you have to tell me how many, uh, may benefit from your contest program. Either one of you start by telling me about the contest. Yes, so it is a visual art contest as well as a songwriting contest. You can submit to one, you can submit to both. And the deadline is Friday, February 4th and it is open to any high school junior or senior in the state of Louisiana. Um, so how many people uh, can secure, um, can win the contest, so to speak, and what do they get? So there are $25,000 total in college scholarships that will Damn. go to five juniors and five seniors for the visual arts contest and for three either junior or senior winners for the songwriting contest. Well, that's great because you know what I hate more than anything is those those huge, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know what's called uh, giveaways of money that give a million millions of dollars to just one person. I say, why don't you just split that up and you know give a give a, a little bit here and a little bit there so there's you know more people have a, a shot at it. So the, I, I like the, the fact that you have chosen that many people. Is this your first year doing it? No, actually, we've done the visual arts contest since 2009 and the songwriting contest. This is our third year doing. 
All right. So tell me about tell me about some of the folks who have won and what the impact of it was for them and what you're hoping to accomplish with this. Ashley, do you want to chime in? Oddly enough, this is my first year getting to be on the Trombone Shorty Foundation staff while the songwriting competition will happen. But I can tell you that I listened to all the winners from last year and I definitely got very emotional listening to everyone's <laughs> recordings. There's something so powerful about um, hearing what our young people create and especially knowing that I believe our winner last year was from Warren Easton. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to hear what local students are creating there's just something so powerful about it um and i'm not one to get emotional very much so it, you know that that speaks volumes to to the caliber of the work that a lot of these young people have been creating you know maybe um christine if you could send me um one sample that we could maybe kind of go out on the show with um so people could could actually hear um, yeah. an example that would be great uh, so tell me about the inspiration for this and, and what you guys hope is going to achieve for folks. Well, our first winner in 2009, he's one of the best stories that we have. He was from a really small town outside of Lake Charles and entered the contest on a whim, won first place, wasn't planning to go to college, ended up going to Savannah College of Art and Design. And That's he's a major school. Yeah, and he's pursuing a career in digital art now. So it's stories yeah. like that that are really I'm getting the driving chills. force I'm getting, behind I'm this. Getting yeah. yeah, and I mean, the winner of the songwriting contest last year said the same thing. He said, I just applied. I never thought I could win. And he's like, this is something I'll think about for the rest of my life whenever I doubt myself because kids don't always see what other people see and they don't have that confidence at that young age. And this definitely you see the impact with the kids. Like some of them, you can tell, super talented. They're going to be fine. They're going to have a career. They're going to be able to go to college. But there's some kids who don't have that opportunity and wouldn't without this contest. And so we've been really blessed to see how much it's been able to impact kids all over the state, especially in those smaller, more rural areas where they don't really have a robust arts program. They just have one or two teachers that really care about like nurturing those kids with that talent and encouraging them to apply for things like this. So, so, so the, so not only does the winner gain really, but um, other young people gain by seeing someone who is from the same world that they inhabit, um, uh, have an, get an opportunity. And they know that if they go after it, that they too can uh, um, find those opportunities and, and progress. Because I think, um, you know, I was a, I was a, visual arts person but uh, I came from the S South Bronx and and we I did not come from um, you know uh, lots of resources and I, and I never got any uh, arts training uh, and so I really kind of uh, had to drift away from it and become you know now I make my living just talking <laughs> primarily uh, advocating for other artists but um, yeah it's it's tough if you're coming from an environment where um, there aren't a lot of uh, resources that you can uh, develop. Um, if you if you could, um, what are your wishes for how you could do more for our youth in Louisiana? Because I think, again, I wish I had the stats on it. Uh, and somebody maybe is working on this, but we don't know. But I think that a higher percentage of youth in our state are creative than anywhere else in the universe, at least in the United States. 
I just think we really have a um, we corner that market, and I'm not sure why, but it's a combination of how powerful our cultural roots are and how present they are. They're not, I always say the past is not past in Louisiana, but also the new young um, artists that come here from elsewhere that have uh, brought all kinds of innovation too. So what's your wish list, Ashley? Oh gosh, I have such a wish list. It's like, it's ridiculous. Uh, but I think one of the first ones in it, it's, it's a very basic wish. And um, that is more of an emphasis on funding for the arts in schools in Louisiana. Um, we have, as you've already noted, such a, a wealth of, of wonderful talent and also of cultural heritage. And as we think about um, what gets cut first at schools, it is predominantly arts programs. And that's really unfortunate given that I, in a lot of the um, legislation around schools that the arts have actually been named as a core art, core subject. They're not just considered to be an elective subject. Uh, and it should be given the same attention that other core, and I'm putting this in quotes because the core association is often things that get tested. And just because we don't test on our subjects doesn't mean that they aren't important. Um, and well, so, so, you know, for me, I, I just wish that funding, robust funding was available so that arts and music programs um, and really any performing arts, any visual arts uh, have the abilities to be impacting our young people's lives because this is a wonderful outlet for us. It teaches a lot of skills that we need to be, um, you know, living and thriving in these larger worlds. It teaches us how to do a lot of other things in the world uh, because a lot of things need creativity. Well, and, and the direction that things are going in technologically in our world, um, internet content is one of the huge um, demanding um, avenues for creative talent and that's doing nothing but exploding. Um, but I also think that anybody who has ever sat down to make a drawing or to sing a song or to you know write a little short play knows that the immersive experience of creating is so affirming of your talent and your potential i mean it just i think it really changes people enormously creative activity just really enhances who they are what what about you christine what's your wish well, like Ashley mentioned, I think just having more awareness of how important the arts are and then in turn having more funding to be able to support these types of initiatives. And I think recognizing that art outside of being a creative expression is therapy in a lot of way to these kids that they need now more than ever, especially with the pandemic and then here in Louisiana with the back to back hurricanes. And, yeah. you know, we've seen that, especially through our theme last year that was basically like asking kids to respond to their pandemic experience these kids are in pain and they're suffering and they need a way to express themselves and i think the more we encourage that it'll be better for this generation like you said the internet is such a robust resource now that we are able to share all of this and encourage kids to put their art out there and i think that the more awareness we have of how important that is, I think that's really vital to like continuing to build the arts community in Louisiana. 
So, so very quickly, because um, we don't have a lot of time, but I want you to, to each of you just describe your, your organization. And then um, let's close with exactly again, how does um, a, a student apply uh, the deadlines? Uh, just how, the how is always the most uh, difficult thing. Well, let's do that first. Um, Christine, how do um, youth compete? How do they apply? So you visit our website, rodriguefoundation.org, and it is the first slider page at the top of the page. You click on that and it takes you to the page about the scholarship art and songwriting contest. It has the rules, it has the guidelines, it has more information about the theme, and there's links to apply right there on the website. And uh, the deadline again is Friday, February the 4th. And Ashley, um, give a student who's gonna try to apply a great hint for how to make their application uh, competitive. You know, uh, what well, would you do? The most important thing is to just try and to submit. And honestly, I, I think that's step one to get yourself in that headspace of actually submitting, because if you don't submit, you aren't eligible for all of these really wonderful prizes. So I would say, go ahead and try. Um, and just a reminder for ourselves, like in the process of songwriting, um, don't think about it as the product first, think about it as the process and that process of how you got here because it's a creative one. Uh, and so when you reframe it that way for yourself that you could win this money, but you also made this piece of art for yourself, it makes it way more rewarding. Um, I'm so um, thankful to you guys for what you're doing. Uh, one sentence each on your organization, Christine, George Rodriguez Foundation, of course, incredible artist, generous in making this commitment to our community. Yes, and anecdotally, I will add, George Rodriguez never won an art contest. So that's something that he there would always say at these events when he would talk to the kids. So he said, y'all are all one step ahead of me because I never won an art contest. But our mission is to advocate for youth development through the art and arts and education. And we do that through our scholarship art contest as well as art supply donation kits to schools in need. Thank you. Ashley, Trombone Shorty Foundation. Of course, the Trombone Shorty Foundation, our mission is to inspire the next generation of young people through music education, instruction, mentorship, and performance. And we do that through our Trombone Shorty Academy, Fredman Music Business Institute, um, as well as our workforce development programs. Thank you guys so much for what you do. Stay in touch, let me know that, oh yeah, when you have your winners, please let me know and let's get them on the show. Of course, okay? yeah. We'll wow. give them a little bit of exposure that way too. Uh, Ashley Shabankari and um, Christine Dunaway from Rod, uh, George Rodriguez Foundation and Trauma Insurity. Thank you guys very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.